Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. Before we return, we wanted to revisit some of our favorite passages from the show last year. We're so excited to bring you season two, starting next Tuesday. For now, you'll hear clips from episodes with Rendon Babenzian, Lauren London, and Jada Pinkett Smith, and Trisha Hersey. We hope you enjoy. So when I first met you, there was something about you that I identified with and I couldn't quite pinpoint it, but I think it has to do with like at a young age, the fact that you were so into music and so into those things, was that because you were seeking a refuge? Certainly. If you are alone or you feel alone, music is like the greatest thing in the world, right? Like it's there for you. and particularly if you find music that speaks to you and you can relate to, right? Whether it be through like just the sonic vibration of it or through lyrics, right? If stuff kind of like connects, I mean, that's as good as a person in the room with you. You know what I mean? Like that's how I always felt. It's funny because I was alone physically from a traditional family structure, right? My mom worked and then I started working quite young and, you know, we were a family, but we were all pretty busy and doing our own things. And we weren't like necessarily at the dinner table every night together and that kind of thing. But I did have friends and like, we're seeking out other people that were into the same things as you as well. Again, at the time, skateboarding was not what it is today. So if you found somebody else who was into skating, that was a big deal. And you can say that about all these things, you know, I mean, I experienced it in b-boy culture where I was from was not like a thing necessarily. Like I was from a predominantly like white suburban town. Later on, when I kind of got into like alternative music, that was the same way. We all know the, the, the language, right? It's like, you were a freak. Yeah. You're one of the freaks who likes those bands. Like, I get it, you know, like, and it just continued and it continues today. Like people think as you get older, you kind of like fade away and you lose interest in life and things. And I still find that I'm the outcast at 49 years old. Ooh. I'm still the outcast. And I don't choose it. It's not like I'm like looking for it. Just you go out for 30 years in New York or 30 some odd years in New York and you've kind of seen it all and done it all. And you're like, I don't really need to go out anymore. And then it's like everyone else still wants to go out and drink and party or whatever. And you're like, well, that's not that interesting to me anymore. Something else is interesting to me. And then you're alone again. But it's such a testimony going back to that kind of um, inner lens or your compass. It's such a testimony to your independence from society, observing society, but investigating truth independently and then holding yourself on that path, which is uncommon. It's uncommon for someone to be so deep in themselves. And it's very inspiring for you to share your process, that inner process, because I think we talk a lot about evolution. I just think people don't know what it actually looks like in life. You know what you were just saying? Here I am alone again. I had a wonderful friend and mentor. She said to me at the end of her life, she said, you know, the goal of any human is to be alone in a crowd Mm. and to really feel the reality of it 
the independence of it, the freedom in it, the love in it. It's not disconnection from people. It's understanding that we are together and we are also never going to be merged. We can't become society. That's not the path of evolution. So I love your description. Maybe you can explain that to some of the people in my life. (laughs) You know, it's it's beautiful the way you described it. I appreciate that because there's an absolute misconception, right? The thought is like, oh, you're antisocial. That's the people like, oh, you just don't, you're antisocial. You don't like, I'm like, well, no, it's like, I'm the opposite. I'm very social, but like, I can't be truly social and truly connect with people in a room of 500 people who are just having these like really quick passing. Oh, how you doing? Good to see you. Kiss, kiss. See you later. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a real event for me. Mm -hmm. That's not a real connection. So why bother? Anyone who knows me knows if you break off for a little while, you find that corner and you start talking, then things get, we really get going. Right. I guess I don't have the patience anymore for kind of like casual acquaintances and casual kind of connections. I'm probably seeking deeper connection with less people. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally cool with that. How do you find where you're going to really put your energy? Mm. Or do you just trust this is all I can do for now and this is where I'm going? Well, no. I mean, you know, it's like I tried to put my energy everywhere unsuccessfully, probably for what I was trying to accomplish on the outside and unsuccessfully for me because it's just so difficult. It destroys you, right? It like breaks you down completely. So to some degree, based on some things you said to me, I'm kind of trying to step back from that and be a little more selective about the things. But it's incredibly difficult to, for me to cut myself off from information flow, which unfortunately information flow can be like highly stressful. That's what was happening to me. I was like taking in as much information as possible about the world at large. And then kind of looking around and being like, did you see this? Do you know this is happening? Oh my God, do you see what's happening in... Ethiopia and Eritrea and then over here in Ghana and like in the chocolate business and uh, 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 and it was killing me for two reasons. One, it took a lot of energy just to stay aware and then to feel what I was feeling about these things, like emotional about these things. But then it was just as difficult because when you talk to people about it, you realize they don't have the same experience that you have with it. They're not feeling it the same way you are. And that turns into frustration, sadness, all sorts of things, because you're kind of like, oh, generally speaking, a lot of people aren't that concerned with what's happening in the world. That's a really scary, sad place to go, that realization. Which is such an amazing thing about you and Melody. Your industries, when I first saw what Melody was, the directions she was taking with her, for lack of a better word, streetwear, I was like, wait a minute, she's addressing this inequality, racism, this, this, all at the same time. And you could see it was like popcorn. It's not, there's a lot of kernels there, but they're popping simultaneously because she's just saying, oh, I'm aware of this. I'm aware of this. I'm putting it out all at once. I love that also. And you do the same thing in your series because you're reaching populations of people. And I actually owe so much to Melody when she started to bring me to Los Angeles to do workshops and and then starting off the speaker series, I got to share the trends I noticed, which I didn't realize I was feeling so burdened about until she invited me to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I was so hideously shy and feeling so embarrassed about sharing these things. 
But the moment I did, I was like, oh, I feel so much <laughs> lighter. Oh, now other people know. Well, right. I guess this is a question for both of you. It's like, how do you decide what to focus on? You know, it's funny because by society standards, I don't have any disadvantages, right? I'm a white man. I'm top of the heap in our society. So I shouldn't have any real personal gripes, right? I'm not really being discriminated against and all that stuff. So like, it's actually strangely a bit harder, right? Because I'm essentially not, I would say I'm not fighting for myself, but then I would say I'm fighting for myself because I think we're all, we're supposed to be one society, right? And I always feel like, if someone's being treated poorly, if something's wrong over here, it's really a reflection of all of us. And the fact that we don't think of ourselves as one community, that's where the problem starts, right? Like we think of people as others, whether it be women as others or people of color as others, whatever it is. So I end up with this like super broad scope of like, I have to kind of talk about everything because white men are kind of the problem. (laughs) So like we have to be heavily involved in fixing the problem because we're controlling everything. Where you tell me, Melody, but it might be fascinating to hear from you on this because as a woman, you know, women are discriminated against. So you kind of have this thing that like you can grab onto immediately. It's very personal for you and go after it, right? Like, what am I going to complain about? Like really for myself. Except that you're aware. Yeah. (laughs) Well, of course. I mean, awareness matters, but like that doesn't change the system, right? My awareness alone doesn't change the system. No, but you're using your awareness to make other people aware. That's what it feels like you're doing. You've literally created everything you do around awareness. It's like you're still that kid that's like, hey, have you heard this song? Do you know about this record? But now you're like, hey, do you know about Lionfish? And do you know about what this shirt is made out of? And about this polar fleece and what happens when you wash it and what it does? And right. <laughs> It's kind of nuts. It definitely feels insane sometimes. But how, I mean, to answer your question, and then you guys can say your process, but it's kind of what comes to me because so many things are coming to me, right? It's like, if you're something that needs attention, it's just the luck of the draw if it gets to me. If I read about it, hear about it, know about it, whatever, and then I'm like, oh my God, that's happening? Let's do something about that, right? It's kind of whatever makes it through. And if you start to fix one, it helps fix the other or vice versa, right? Like if you tackle one of those issues in, a, in an area of the world, it's more than likely going to help the other one as well. That's so, so cool. Melody, how do you make your choices? It's kind of the same thing. They come to me and then there's other things that I'm, that I just like get really enraged about, like things that really touch on me or things that I notice. Sometimes it'll be, I'll talk to friends. And then all of a sudden I'll notice all my friends are sort of dealing with the same kind of issue or not even my friends. It'll just happen to be like whoever I talk to that week. And then it'll just sort of flag something on my, on my radar. Or, you know, sometimes I'll see some kind of messaging that is still being repeated. And it'll make me really upset as to why we keep saying that. Like, why are we using those terms still? Right. So it's usually a a combination of things. Like I'll be reading a book, I'll talk to somebody and then I'll see something and then I'll be like, oh my God. But I think it's also very personal just because of what, you know, we've been through. I think that's why I was so interested about not necessarily the pain that you went through, but just the fact that you did go through something 
because I think that it really changes your orientation. And I, you know, I know you have siblings and, um, you know, it's crazy because you can grow up under the same exact circumstances and come out completely different. And I don't know anything about how, if you and your brother are similar or not, but it's interesting, like what we take from that pain or through that experience and then what, where we go with it. And like, for me, it's like, after going through that, I think that I don't want anybody else to ever have to go through that again. And that becomes such a driving factor. And I feel like you have that thing. I feel like you've been through some shit and you don't want to see that repeated in the world. I see that in the way that you parent. I see it in the way that you deal with your brand, the way that you even hire people, how you treat your employees. I love that how that process has gotten you here. And I, I think that's just important to point out because a lot of people think that they don't understand that part of the process, that it, it was hard to get there. I mean, I'm 49. <laughs> this didn't happen overnight, right? Like it yeah. took a long time to get here. I mean, I can certainly make the argument that what we do is completely useless. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, do we really need more clothing brands? You know what I mean? Like I, I do it because it's all I've ever done. And honestly, I don't know what else I'm capable of at this point in my life. It's like, this is what I know. So that dictated this. Like, I was like, okay, I know I want to be a better citizen, but all I do is make clothes. And that's not very helpful, which is how we came to this idea that if we use the business in a variety of ways as an agent of change, even if it's just through education, and we don't do just education, we do education Plus we do finance, right? Like we donate money to things. So like we do it in multiple ways. Then that made me feel okay with what I'm doing, you know? Like, because you could really look at your life and be like, I see all of the wrongs in the world and I feel them. And you could decide, I just have to dedicate my life to that or I'm not being genuine. Like, how am I going to dedicate my life to fixing the problems that we see? And I asked myself that question and and the conclusion I came to was like, well, I'm probably not as good at being a kind of like full-time volunteer on the other side of the planet as I am at getting people to pay attention to a shirt (laughs) or an idea or whatever. So if this is what I'm best at, can't I use this as a vehicle to kind of like bring information to the world and like help people and so on and so forth. So that, that's how we got here. But the clothes, I mean, we don't need more clothes really, you know? I mean, look, we use different standards. That's another reality, right? We're using different standards, people like you and, and I. like How we evaluate our businesses is not necessarily the same as how others in our industry would evaluate them, right? We include in the economics of it, the damage we might be doing or how many people we might be helping or what, whatever it is. But like the economy isn't just goods traded for money with us. There's more layers to the economics for us. And what we think is... That's how all industry should function. They should all think about the economics beyond just their money, their products, and the consumers buying them. It's like, well, if you haven't factored in the economics of like human suffering where you produce your stuff, then the price that you're selling it for isn't even real. How did you guys meet each other? I was really nudged hard to reach for Lauren 
when we lost Nip, mm. you know, I, I, you can't really explain it. I can't really explain it, but it was like a higher energy. It was just like, I need you to reach out to Lauren. And she just was just so heavy on my mind and heavy on my heart. My circumstances, which, you know, me losing someone who was close to me, you know, tragically and publicly in that way. So I just wanted to reach for her just in support because I know when all the fanfare is gone, you're still there mm. with emptiness and, and, and uh, grief and mm. lack of understanding. You just need so much support just throughout the years. You know what I mean? It doesn't just, you know, you don't, that's not something that you kind of get past quickly. So I reached for her and in good old Lauren London style. Uh, (laughs) and I had so much respect for it because it reminded me so much of myself Mm. you know what I mean I kind of in a way expected that if if she was anything of what I thought she was what Mm. she was you know I found her number I got her number and just kind of texted her and I was just like hey you know I'm just reaching out to you I just want you to know that um you know, if you ever need to talk or need anything, you know, reach for me. And she was like, oh, that's sweet. That's nice. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It made all the sense in the world because at that particular time, you're having all kinds of people reach for you. So you don't know where anybody's really sitting. You know what I'm saying? And yes, intention. So over the months, I just kept reaching. Hey, just checking in. You good? You know, mm-hmm. and just over, just reaching, reaching, reaching. And one day she was like, no, I'm not good. That was yeah. It. That's when you were filming, actually. I was in Germany. You were in Germany. Yeah. It was so natural to respond and be really honest with her. Yeah. And I think our first time really hanging out was very, like, spiritual. Like, mm-hmm. we had, like, a sacred sister circle. You know, it was a yeah. lot of prayers involved. Yeah, we did. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to, let's go to lunch and you know, fake talk about the weather or something like that. We were like, (laughs) it wasn't aligned with what I considered hanging out, being fun. So Mm. it was an alignment, even our first time hanging out. And then I feel like from there, it was like, like, I really feel like I had known her for a hundred years. That's the best. I love that, Lauren. When you create the foundation of your friendship based on your spirit and your spirituality, what else are you not going to get along with? Yeah. I actually think this is probably the first friendship I've had built in that way from the gate and the the idea of supporting one another to get home. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And that's such a testament to how hard it is to find that because Jada, I'm sure in your lifetime, you've met millions and millions of people and had so many connections and for you to just find that now. Mm -hmm. Julie said something to me in a session, actually, that really struck me. She said that you're not allowed to be more than a person recognizes. Because it's like if somebody sees your greatness from the beginning, then you have permission to be your whole self. Then you you have Mm. something to build, you know? And if they don't, in truth, it's their loss. If you really think about what is a true friend... It's, first of all, someone who believes in what you are already. And even if they don't know everything about you yet, they believe in you and they 
are going to reflect that back to you, not their projections or their agendas of you. Yeah, that's real talk. Yeah, I think that's a testament to our friendship too. In my, what I would say was my most vulnerable and darkest time, Jada just only saw my light. Mm. And vice versa. <laughs> like, yeah, I've had some really dark times with, with Lauren and she's only ever just kept encouraging the best. That's the thing, you know, I knew when I was getting nudged, I was like, I felt like we had something for each other. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it then, but I knew there was going to be beautiful reciprocity in this relationship. And it has been. Yeah. Another way Julie said it is a true friend is somebody that sees no end to you. Yeah. I love that so much because so many people try to put us in a place. I hate that. It's like, it almost feels like loyalty, like where I have to be loyal to the person in that way. And I can't be my whole self or my true self. Mm -hmm. But when somebody just sees no end to you and they just want more and more and they're just like, oh, that's what you're doing now. Let's do this. Or that's what you're feeling now. Let's go there. I feel like that's you and I too, Melody. Yes. Because I've known you for so long. Yeah. I've known her since yeah. Yeah. It's the, your evolution and ascension, even, you know, yours too, Julie. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, it's just no end to it. Well, I also, you know, uh, you are saying this and it makes me think of what you guys were talking about that you shared in your reciprocity. But even when you're in your darkest place, that friend does not see you in the darkness. That's right. Yeah. It's not they're coming in to save you. You know, I need my best friend. They're coming in to see you. See you. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And help yes. you see yourself. Yes. yes. Right. But I think it's interesting when you were talking about the idea of how we put relationships in these boxes. So we can't see the person beyond how we've labeled them. You know what I'm saying? And the expectations that come with those labels. And what I've had to learn in my life is that, you know, to get in alignment with the higher power, because the higher power brings people into your life for whatever the purpose the higher power wants. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so I might have someone come into my life as, you know, I label a person as a sister, but, you know, the higher power is like, oh, no, this person is going to be a fierce reminder of the shadow aspects of yourself that that have mm. to is this is not going to be, you know, considered a joyful uh, feeding into your self gratifying uh, feelings. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. And so, but this person is your sister in the truest sense because of those reflections that might not be the reflections that you want to see of yourself, yeah. but it's part of the purification process. And I've really have had to kind of release my immature concepts around relating, Mm. you know, understanding that each relationship is about purification and Mm. getting us to that true sense of love within and without. And it's, it's Mm. not steeped in ego and the the aspects of self-gratification, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about the friendships that have not lasted throughout the years for me. And I used to hold so much honor in that if we're friends for 20 years, I'm such a, that means I'm a loyal person Mm -hmm. or I'm a solid person. I've had fun. But when you just said what you said about everything being a purification, 
that makes me okay to let some of those times go. I don't have to always hold on to the fire. It became and it taught me the lesson and we've, you know, gone into gone different in different ways. ways. To be grateful for it all. Well, what trips me out is I've realized how many friendships I've chosen based on the relationship with my mom and dad. There's certain things that I didn't get from my mom. And so I have become friends with my mom over and over again and then tried to get a different result at the end of it. And once I realized that, I was so free from becoming friends with those kinds of people to achieve that kind of thing. Sometimes subconsciously we're attracted to a certain kind of dysfunction that's familiar to us. It's so true. And I also think if you don't know yourself, then you don't know the warning signs. But, you know, it's not that you necessarily created it. You just didn't know. Mm. You know, the minute the contrast starts, something in you should be waking up going, wait, this isn't about me. This has nothing to do with what I am. So I can't support this. This is a place that I no longer can express myself. And maybe it's temporary. Maybe this person is on a journey and you'll meet back on the road. But it's very likely that they're going to ramp up the drama wherever they go. And there is no kind of friendship. No. Yeah, I think I um, experienced that recently in just my adult friendships. Mm. You just grow in different ways and on choose different paths. And so certain ways that I would connect and bond with certain friends, you know, trauma bond, gossip bond. Those are elements and energies I don't want to entertain anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when the, when I stopped entertaining it, then it was like we had nothing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's That is it. There's like a different kind of intimacy, I think, that you can have with your female friends. There's this unspoken understanding between women, specifically, I think, and a sacred level that we can communicate on that that, that is very easy. With Lauren and I, there are times where she really doesn't have to say much of anything. And I'm clear about what's happening and what's going on and vice versa, you know, and that we can sit in each other's space. We can be laughing or we can be still and quiet. And there's still a communication that's happening. And with men, you know, as far as romance is concerned, there's just so much stuff that that kind of dynamic brings up with your friendships you can you you get to bypass all of that stuff mm-hmm. now you you go into other wells you know but there's also a different kind of trust it's a different want and expectation too right and there's a familiar pain yeah. that we as sisters have I've experienced. experienced it might not be mm-hmm. the experience but it's like, oh, yeah, I, I can see you and say, I know that. I know that. Yeah. Just from being sitting in the seats of being just a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get a lot of joy out of not having to explain. Me right? too. Yeah. Like just being able to <laughs> be. Be. Sometimes you're just looking to just be peaceful together. Yeah. Right? Laugh or have fun. It, it feels like, you know, if I go back to my days where I was in, you know, relationship, intimate relationship. I was looking to my partner to be, be everything. Friend, parent, 
love of the life, like everything, teacher, yeah. everything, yeah. you know? That's why for me, I feel like in every relationship, the foundation has to be friendship. Mm-hmm. And that that's just me. But that's been one of my focal points in relating is being able to establish the foundation of friendships. So whether it's my kids and I, whether it's Will and I, my mother and I, every relationship, I feel like has to have some foundation of friendship. Like she's been such a a beautiful light, you know, for for the family in general. And she's just, yeah, she's been a, a, a deeply healing component for me. You too for me. Yeah. So it's it's been a good, it's been good. Yeah. And I brought some little friends with me. Yeah. She I brought, brought some little humans she, yeah, with me. Yeah, she sure did. I just love them to Camera yeah. cross. They bring me so Yeah. They bring me so much joy. They do. I feel exactly the same way about Melody. I mean, I love her and therefore I love all her people because yeah. I can't help it. That's you it. just can't help it. And it becomes like now they're in your circle and now you start thinking about them and loving them and worrying about them. And yeah. it's so good. It's so beautiful. It really is. Sushi, should we ask the question? Oh, yeah. So there is a question we ask everybody before we leave, which is, is there anything personally or collectively in the world that you thought would have happened for you by now that hasn't happened yet? I have to say, you know, I just turned 50. I never in a million years thought 50 could feel so freaking good. We always are talking about empowerment. We're always talking about like, you know, self-love. And and I feel like, oh, snap. At 50, I finally got it. Mm. Not, not it as like it's done, but like I finally got to see like, oh, so this is what it feels like to like be good with you and be happy mm. even in your aloneness and you know, feel empowered in a way like um, you have yourself enough that your level of confidence of like being able to handle whatever you are confronted with and just knowing that everything that is going on is for my benefit. And I'm sad that it took me 50 years, but I also know that everything is in divine order. Mm. But I'm just at a space Mm. right now where I just... You know, so I didn't expect this. <laughs> I didn't expect to be coming into such a new way. Some um, peace. Some peace. Some enlightenment. Yeah, because, you know, I spent most of my life deeply depressed. You know what I mean? So spent most of my life feeling very hopeless. And so to like be 50 and see that there's only light, you know what mm. I mean? And, um, yeah, that that I didn't expect. So I think my life has changed so drastically in the past two years that there's not there's no place that like I guess I am surprised that I have laughed again. Yeah. Cause I've really <sighs> impossible and that there are things that I am now looking forward to. Yeah. And that my relationship with God is growing. So that I from where I was three years ago, I did not think I would be in the space of seeking enlightenment and having a stronger relationship with God because 
I just thought it was all over. Yeah. I mean, what you both shared, I feel, are such iconic things for so many. You know, it makes me emotional to think that I still have so much to look forward to. Because especially culturally, you know, for women around the world, like time is such a hack, you know? Yeah, such a hack. It's such a hack. And what a great surprise, because at the end of that, you're like, oh, there really is a creator. It really is infinite. Ha, joke's on you. <laughs> I think it's fascinating that you got your calling and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. This, and I, when I think about the work I've been doing, like this work, the NAP ministry is a culmination of 20 years of my working as a community organizer and activist and artist and uh, black uh, liberationist. Like I've been like, I feel like this is like every piece of a cocktail that came together of all the things I've done since I've been like 19, 20 years old, you know, doing organizing work then and then and it all coming together now in this beautiful way. Because when I started this project, it really was just that a project. It was a project that was going to be like a one night only event. It was kind of me coming together to kind of share what I had learned while I was in seminary and graduate school and kind of that's where the NAP ministry experimentation began. That's where I started to experiment with what rest could do for my own body. It was about me saving my own life. I didn't think this was going to be a hashtag, you know, a global movement. I thought that later. But when I was right in the beginning nexus of it, it was really like, I have to save my life. And I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I feel on edge. I need to, my body is giving out. I need to, I'm just going to rest. So it really was a powerful idea of refusal. I was in a seminary program that was, like one of the top seminaries in the world. Um, the pace was so rigorous. The expectations were so rigorous. And I literally just was like, fuck it. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm not, I'm just going to lay down and take naps all over campus. I, I, <laughs> like, I literally got to a point where I was like, I don't care. Like, I have to live. And so I would go to classes and just get the attendance credit so that I wouldn't get kicked out. But I literally went through a phase of a semester where I just literally was just sleeping all over the campus. I would come because I felt like there was something in me telling me, don't stop this work. Don't stop mm. me in the seminary. Like, But I really kind of started to disconnect from the classes and from what I was doing. And I just started sleeping and resting. And I was also working as... um a student worker as an archivist. So I was working in the archives. Mm. So I did that. I love that. I loved these underground mm. caves of floors and floors of boxes and boxes of people's stuff that I was like the first person to touch, you know, coming from their homes. And mm. I was working in the African-American collection. So I was touching documents that were hundreds of years old and wow. reading stories of Black women who were like resisting and reading love letters in their journals. And you'd open what? up a yeah, I was, you open up a box and one of their earrings will fall out. You know, we would be getting boxes oh of people's gosh. work from, it would be, have been in their ba- their family's basement for 20 years. And our curator would be, get the get the boxes and get their papers and they would be shipped to us. And I would be the first person to open them, you know. 
just so overwhelmed with the idea of people's things telling a story about their lives and having it so sacred to be able to touch these things with gloves on and dig deep. And so I was doing that, reading slave narratives and resting, you know, trying to just maintain. And as I did that for about a, about a semester, and then finally things started to just take shape. I started to get like, I was getting like A's and B's on quizzes that I didn't study for. Mm-hmm. I would be getting papers back and be like, I wrote that? Like, what the heck? What was, I wrote that? Like, I got an A. I don't even remember saying that. It was almost like this telepathic, metaphysical, spiritual work was happening within my body. And I was making these connections between the brain and the body. Now that I know more about neuroscience and what happens in the brain um, when you rest and when you sleep, it all makes sense mm-hmm. that my brain was like, downloading all this new information I was learning, you know, the pace of reading thousands of pages of books every week, you know. I just started to be able to just get better grades. And I was like, just showing up to class and be like, oh, I know that. I drink that. You know, like, I remember that now. Like, the way academia works, it doesn't allow you the opportunity to process this new information. Mm -hmm. It's like, read the book, take the quiz, and then you have seven classes and all the teachers want the same thing. But it doesn't allow the body, these all-nighters staying up to three in the morning. You know, I had, when I was friends who were like sleeping overnight in the library, the library is open 24 hours and people were literally having breakdowns with their bodies. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to rest. And I started to get better grades in all of them. And they were like, what's the key? You know, like the key is sleep. You know, I just started to be like, the key is rest, you know, and then dreaming with this energy of these documents and these archives that I have been holding and touching by myself for hours a day, you know, I was just like, it was like a really spiritual thing. And I think people miss the idea of the spiritual dimension of rest and what can happen Mm. when you refuse and when you are subversive, when you say, I don't know what it's going to be, but it ain't going to be this. And I'm just, I refuse. And I just said, I'm going to lay down and I don't know. I'll let the chips fall where they may. If I fell out of school, if I don't get grades, I don't care. But I just was at a moment of, I had to save my own life. And so that's really the energy of where this work came from is that Mm. me trying to live. It's so incredible because you are napping, like all of a sudden it's part of your practice. Yeah. Did you start dreaming of the people you were archiving? Yes, Mm. absolutely. I had so Mm. many dreams. I will be reading slave narratives and thinking about my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I would just take naps and sleep with it. It was almost like when I take a nap, when I sleep, I felt like in some way I was reconnecting with my ancestors. I was Mm. communicating with them. It became ancestor reverence. I began to really hone in on the idea of I will reclaim the dream space that was stolen from you in this dimension. I'll do that for you. This is my reparations. This is our reparations. Mm -hmm. They stole your dreams. They stole your ability to rest. I can reclaim it now. So it became real intentional for me that I have to rest now for them. And while I was resting, I would have dreams. I would see see people walking in fields and and then they would just lay down on like on cotton and on grass. And I just would see all these outdoor mm-hmm. movements and outdoor ideas. I would see my grandmother resting. I was communicating. I was really literally having deep ancestral communication. I believe that 
the things that we need for our liberation are waiting for us in our dreams. Our ancestors are like, I wish that they would just lay down because I got something to tell them, but they won't stop. They won't stop enough for me to give this word, for me to download this information to them. They keep going, they're on the grind. But if we could see resting and sleeping as part of a liberation practice that has already done work for us. Like the ancestors have already done work for us. They're waiting to spread a word. Like the name of this ministry, the tenets of the ministry all came to me in dreams. You know, my ancestors gave me this information. They all told me these things. So many things, I'll wake up and write a text or write something and the meme will go up. And I was just putting memes up based on what I was waking up and hearing. And people are like, how much, how long does it take for you to write all these memes that you're putting up? I'm like, I literally don't take any time to write them. I was literally waking up and just writing them. Like my husband laughs at me. He's always like, I, he was like, if people really understood that you really have led a full global movement <laughs> around in your bed, they would not understand what has happened. I was like, I know I've cracked the code. You know, the code has been cracked. Like the more you sleep, the more you're tapped in. Like I, mm -hmm. I rest and sleep so much. And I feel like that it allows my mind to be so inventive and to be at these genius levels, like the neuroscience around what happens in the brain. If when you don't rest, you're literally not at your full maximum potential in thinking and connection. And from a spiritual sense, it's the slow death also to not rest. And so it did become a practice and I began to be very intentional. So like the first event we did was me doing a um, performance art piece where I read the names of my ancestors. I show archival footage of people working in cotton fields. I had a huge, beautiful rest altar created. I slept with cotton that was from a farm in North Carolina, from a Black-owned farm that's been in the family for four generations. And so I really embodied this idea of connecting with my ancestors, of rest being a reparations for them, of sleep being a portal and rest being a portal to invent and create and to really heal our lineage, to heal the exalt the legacy of exhaustion that we have on us and to like repair to what was done. What you're saying is so profound, but I feel like the hesitation for a lot of people is the understanding of what our reality actually is. Yeah. We don't realize that we have something other than a physical reality, yes. you know, and also that there is life after death, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like this whole connection to yes. the ancestors mm -hmm. is because we're still coexisting with yes. that, those energies. And I don't think we realize how much we have access to them and how no. they're literally available for mm -hmm. us at all times. They want to help us. All we have to do is be available for it or to ask for it or. What white supremacy has done is disconnected us so deeply from our natural state. It's so deeply disconnected us from what's real. You know, we have now included that people think they literally were just born to work. They're like, I was born yes. to work. That's it. They don't see that they literally, their full divine human body, their human existence on this earth in this dimension is so for so much more. There's so much more, but they don't see that they see capitalism, you know, that mm -hmm. being the um, connection. I got to make the money. I got to work. I got to do this. And so I really illuminate and blame the systems and grind culture for what it's done to brainwash us. I named this as a brainwash. We've been socialized. Mm -hmm. We've been brainwashed from mm -hmm. the time we were born, even before we were born. 
to see ourselves as machines, to see our worth connected to how much we produce, to see our full energy for being born is to produce and create and make and go. And we, we don't understand that our worth was just given to us from our being born. From being born, that's enough. You're enough right at that moment. It's right. already been verified. You don't have to do another thing. And so mm. how deep the brainwashing is, how deep and violent mm. it is. I don't think, I think mm. people are starting to wake up to the fact of how violent this actually is for you to be yes. resisting something that's so natural. Like grind culture is so violent. It like totally degrades our divinity. It sees us as a machine. It comes from slavery it comes from that plantation labor that created capitalism so when you connect the dots it's almost like a rude awakening people a lot of people are in a place of grieving i believe right now the idea of how much we've been manipulated by the Mm -hmm. system and it's a grieving period. I want people to understand that it is going to be grief and you're going to have to give yourself grace and mercy. Like if you are caught up in grind culture today, you can't take a nap today because you're, you're in it and give yourself grace. Tomorrow's another day. You can have 10 minutes to close your eyes. You can connect in ways we can reimagine. And it's what's been the dark side of this work is me seeing how deeply um, the systems have abused us to the point of our self-esteem does not exist. People don't think they deserve anything expansive, liberating, or wet or um, good. They don't think they deserve to rest. I think it also, for me at least, one of the struggles that I've noticed is that I feel like it disconnects you from the concept of a creator. Yes. You know, where you become the creator. So everything is about, so I feel like, especially in the the U.S., like people take it on as if they're the ones. I gotta do it. I'm responsible. Everything, yes. Whereas in other cultures, like, you rely heavily on the ancestors, heavily. you know, heavily. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the culture. Uh-huh. Whereas here, it's like, it's all about the individual. And so it almost makes you feel like it's not real. It disconnects you from that Deeply. connection. This work is so radical and so expansive. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it can lead you back to your imagination. You know, it can lead you back to the power of, trusting the divine that exists just in you from by being alive you know trusting Mm -hmm. nature trusting your intuition trusting hoping you know and I think it is such deep layers to this work and I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it here because people are gonna have to really pull back some veils you know yes (laughs) but the veils are deeply on us and slowly and slowly and slowly I'm watching people make sense of it all and so I always say to myself this work is an experimentation I am just a curious person who wants to see how far rest can take us how far connection can take us how far Mm -hmm. pausing and stillness and silence and connecting with our divine no matter what I trust the divine you know what I mean no matter what I trust that I'm here for a reason. You know, I I trust that so deeply and I understand that this system has robbed people to where they aren't there. They aren't able to trust that. All they can see is, I got to eat. You know, I have to 
pay bills. I have to work. And what um, violence this capitalism has done to us. And I'm mad about it every day. You know, there's this tender rage of wanting us to be free, of wanting us to tap into our divine. I keep saying when we really tap in to what spirit has for us, to who we truly are collectively, it'll be over for these systems. They won't be able to exist no more. It'll be done. It'll be done once we really tap into who the hell we are, you know? (laughs) Yes. Well, what we can do is go into our own core, into the depth, get the truth out where there's a single-pointed reality where we all come out in the same arena of truth so we can make amends Uh and we could tell the truth from now on about the past and where we're headed, you know? That's a beautiful thought. I really want people to like tap into the spiritual practice of rest, the spiritual dimension. It can really heal. It can do some healing on you that you can't do in this awake world. Maybe there can be some apologies or some amends in these dreams and you can kind of connect there with your ancestors and really do some deep uncovering, you know, that dark night of the soul, that shadow work, you know? Yes, yes. I think rest can support that, you know, because that's a... It's a lot. It's very intense. And so to be able to Mm. make space for silence and daydream. And I always want to talk about resting, not just being naps. You know, resting is daydream. And it's anything that connects our mind and our bodies. It's slowed down. It's a pause. It's healthy boundaries. It's some things that bring us back and connect us. Trisha, you are a word. I could just sit here and listen to you forever. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it so much. Aw, thank you so much for joining us. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on March 8th with our first episode of Season 2, The Quest for World Peace. From there, you can hear new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you like to listen. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. We hope to see you there.